the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, there have been statistics, and these are statistics I think that we all well, sadly, know too well of what's happened with the divorce rate in America. Perhaps another alarming point to just how much pressure marriage is under in our nation today is the fact that growing numbers of couples aren't even bothering. By that I mean many are deciding since more than half of marriages in America today wind up in divorce court, why even bother? Just reside together. It'll make things less complicated when we decide that we're no longer fit for each other. But is that really God's design for marriage? And if your marriage is on the rocks right now, and you and or your spouse have basically decided we've gone as far as we can go. Let's just pull the bandage off all in one fell swoop and get it over with. Does that mean that your marriage is necessarily hopeless and destined to become just yet another statistic? My guest today on the program, I think, would suggest absolutely not. That Perhaps, much like when you need a major overhaul of your engine on the car or you need to go into the doctor and have surgery, there needs to be a radical approach, an intensive approach to getting your marriage off the rocks and back on track again. Joining me on the program, Dr. Jared Pingleton. He's Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, great to have you on the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Craig. My pleasure. We talk about marriage, and there's been an exciting marriage, so to speak, between um, the Ministry of Focus on the Family and another organization that you have deep ties to that really has been at the forefront of saying to couples, look, you don't have to become another statistic that as bad as it might be, as challenging as your relationship may be, there is no such thing as no hope at all. That's absolutely correct. Let's talk a bit about where we're at with statistics in America today. We talk about, on average, uh, one out of every, every two marriages ends in divorce. Are we simply taking the easy way out? Is that what this is about? Well, I'm, I'm not really sure, Craig. I know that we live in a culture that is very transitory, and, you know, we, we, we live in a throwaway society. You know, uh, we, we just don't have a good sense of what covenant is about, and we get very little, uh, I think, effective preaching and teaching as to what a covenant actually is. And so we have been now for about three generations into a culture that has the no-fault concept of, of divorce, and so... Yeah, if we're incompatible, you know, let's just uh, call it quits. And, you know, this throwaway society in which we live has unfortunately extended that to the realm of relationships. And that is absolutely antagonistic to everything that the Bible teaches. And we feel passionately about being able to understand how God is a redeemer, and not just in our heart, but in our relationships, and especially marriage here at Focus on the Family. You suggest that this is multi-generational, and you're, you're absolutely accurate on that point. And I wonder if part of the problem 
problem here is that we have multiple generations now that have never perhaps for themselves ever witnessed or experienced what a healthy, functioning marriage looks like. I mean, if, if one out of every two marriages ends in divorce, that means there's a good chance of every couple that gets together tomorrow, say, or are going to be at the altar next week, uh, likely one, if not both of them, come from a family that wound up in divorce. So maybe part of the problem is we're, we're just modeling the behavior that we've experienced because we know nothing different. We, we don't know what a healthy marriage looks like. Do you think maybe that's part of the problem, too? I, I absolutely do, Craig. I think that's absolutely correct. I uh, just wrote a book called Making Magnificent Marriages, and I, I have a whole chapter to your point of this whole difficulty that we have had of not having good examples lived out in front of us. And so we have this incredible cohabitation right now among millennials in our culture. They have seen very poor marriages modeled in front of them. And so their whole idea of try before you buy to them makes sense. But the problem with that is there's no there's no foundation of trust. It's, it's building the proverbial marital house on sand. And without commitment, without covenant, it's impossible for a relationship to endure. And, and that's why I think we need to help people understand what a healthy marriage looks like. Um, so, and, and the irony is, you know, that about 40% of first marriages end in divorce. The irony is this, for people who cohabit, their breakup rate is 80%. Wow. So it's like, well, I don't want to have a failed relationship, so I'm going to double my odds of <laughs> that actually happening. And that's the incredible irony and deception that I think our culture is living under these days because uh, the vast majority of 20-somethings are either delaying marriage into their 30s or not marrying at all. They're just cohabitating. Well, you use the term covenant, and I think it's a very important one because it's a biblical one, and it is one that we have strayed from quite significantly over a number of generations, as you point out. And let's face it, if we go into a marriage or into a relationship with the idea that we're going to cohabitate to kind of take it for a test drive, both of the partners going into that relationship know deep down that at any day, the other partner could come into the door and say, you know what, I'm done. Packing my bags and I'm leaving. There's no hope. There's no sense of commitment. There's nothing there that that is a glue to hold us together. And so no wonder when we go in with, number one, the the baggage we have of our own brokenness from being products of broken relationships. There's such a level of distrust that we, we build that relationship then not on a foundation of trust and confidence and covenant, as you suggest, but rather it's built at the very get go by making a silent statement. I don't trust you. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what a cohabitating mindset says is, hi, I love you, but I don't trust you. Will you live with me? (laughs) And do so happily ever after. (laughs) There's no basis for security. There's no basis for any sense of being able to relax. The, The whole point of sex without commitment is antagonistic to the fundamental maxim of God's universe, that without exclusivity and permanence and unconditionality, there's nothing to create security, stability, and strength in a relationship. And so there's all kinds of things then that enter into the relationship. Performance pressure 
other, comparisons with others, and an ongoing continuous thread of fear. And, um, you know, if they find somebody else, why shouldn't they just jump out and hop into relationship with that other person? So it's uh, it, it has a whole bunch of fear and anxiety that's just built in. So I, I just don't recommend it at all. And we wind up settling for less than the ideal. We wind up yes. settling for a marriage that exists but does not thrive. And as I think you might suggest from your background um, prior to coming on board with uh, Focus on the Family as Director of Counseling there, Dr. Pingleton was involved with the National Institute for Marriage. Would you suggest that marriages should not simply settle for getting along or second best, but in fact, under the right circumstances and, and ultimately with the right modeling and coaching, that marriages can not only survive but thrive? Is that possible? That That is absolutely correct, Craig. I, I believe that God's design for marriage is a redemptive process. Now, <clears throat> that's theological code word for saying that God delights in transforming blessing out of our brokenness. And the only way we can have that transformation take place is to get in touch with our brokenness. Mm. And so what marriage does, ironically, is it pulls the very worst out of us um, just by, by means of osmosis, as it were. Uh, we get to reap everything that everybody else in our spouse's world sowed into their heart before we showed up. <laughs> hip, hip, hooray. But, you know, marriage is the hardest thing I think there is to do well. And the research bears that out, too. And not just the divorce rates, but the marriage satisfaction rates suggest that about 5 to 12% of American marriages are mutually fulfilling. Wow, just 5%. That, yeah, 5 to 12%. And 90% of that 5 to 12% have been after 30 years or more. Mm. So marriage is hard, and yet I think it is God's plan to redeem us. Well, don't you think, too, that if we, if we set our sights so low, uh, we have no sense of expectation coming in. We're, we're not willing to do the hard work. Uh, we right. come into the marriage relationship, admittedly or otherwise, broken. Even if, we, even if we came from a whole home where mom and dad were together the entire time, there, there's still the influence of the outside world and, and man's innate sin nature that brings a sense of brokenness into the marriage relationship, and then we set yes. no expectations at any level for excellence at all, uh, I guess when we go into marriage like that, anticipating disappointment, we shouldn't be surprised when we get it. That's true. That's true. And yet we have all these other romanticized, idealistic expectations that come from Hollywood and Hallmark that we should live happily ever after. And that's just a, that's a romantic myth. That's a fairy tale. That's not reality. So I guess the question is, and I'm going to ask you to stay with us for one more segment because we need to dive deeper into this. The question then becomes, look, if we know and recognize that God has established the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, certainly God has, as we see throughout Scripture, high expectations for what that is. God has not designed this, as some folks might think, just to bring two people together to torture each other, but in right. fact to, to grow with one another and as they do so, grow closer to each other, closer to God. God, and to work through all of the baggage that, as we said before, we all bring into the marriage relationship. Now, how do we how do we learn to to sort of um, expunge or 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 deal with the pain and disappointment and hurt in our life to find healing, not only in our own lives but restoration and your marriage, even as on the rocks and hopeless as it might seem today, you might be listening to this conversation and saying, Craig, I, I understand. 
understand what, what you and Dr. Pinkerton are saying, but you guys just don't understand. You've never met my wife, or you don't know my husband, or you just right. don't know the agony and the challenges that we've been through. And we've, we've talked to our pastor, and that doesn't seem to work, and, and we've read a couple of books. We maybe even went into a couple of counseling sessions, but you don't understand. It is hopeless. Is it really, or are you simply saying that you've given up on God, that your marriage is beyond God's ability to restore it? Really? Do you really believe that? If you do, it's okay to admit that. But I want you to stay right where you're at, because when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into, as we've acknowledged what the problem is, where's the hope in all of this? Dr. Jared Pinkleton is with us today. He's the Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We're talking about an interesting marriage, a partnership, really, between our friends at Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage. It has had a remarkable track record in bringing hope and healing and restoration to marriages, maybe even yours. Stay with us. We'll get back to more. More of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. We continue our visit today. Dr. Jared Pingleton is with us today. He is Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. We've been talking about the state of marriage in America today, and, and, and perhaps you are one of those statistics that we talked about earlier. Maybe you're at the point where you feel as if you've tried everything that you can. Your marriage is just simply Hopeless. That, of course, uh, Dr. Pingleton runs um, contrarian to God's ideal for marriage. And God certainly hasn't given up on this. This is a matter, though, of, of perhaps accurately and adequately looking at what we're, where we're at in our marriage relationship and, and what God wants to do to bring about healing and restoration both in our lives individually and then together as a couple. Absolutely. God's design and plan for marriage is something that our culture has sort of adopted to feel like, well, they're not making me happy anymore, and so I need to find someone else. And that's just totally contrary to God's plan. That is, He wants us to to grow and to heal and to restore and redeem one another. But what marriage does is exposes the depths of our selfishness. It exposes the, um, the, the irony that, you know, we're hoping our love will cure the other person. And, and then we're disappointed when it doesn't. Uh, Craig, I'm a, as a clinical psychologist as well as a credentialed minister, one of the ironies that I've noticed over my career for 37 years is this. Without exception, almost every couple that comes into marriage therapy does so hoping their spouse will change. <laughs> <laughs> Always the other guy's fault, right? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the irony is when both of us change, whether the other one does or not, then and only then can God begin to work in each person's heart and life. Well, and you know, the irony of that is you talk about a level of frustration, doctor, because if we come into a, a challenges and, and a rough spot in marriage and we lay, entirely lay the blame on the other side uh, of the marriage relationship, and I, I can see in some circumstances, you know, somebody eavesdropping on our conversation right now might say, well, guys, you don't understand. My husband right. did this. My wife did that. And right. you may have an adequate point, but here's the challenge. You have absolutely no control over their thought process or their behavior. But I tell you what you do have control over, and that is your own. 
Exactly. And that empowering of the individual to take responsibility for their own marriage covenant, I think, is crucial. And it's revolutionary. When both people get that, even if just one person in the marriage gets that, the marriage system changes. Because here's what God wants for us, Craig. He wants us to realize, hey, my covenant has nothing to do with my spouse. My covenant has to do with me. And I, I elaborate this real fully in, in my book about marriage is that, you know, the, the self-respect that's generated when I keep my marriage covenant, because I promise to love my wife unconditionally on days that end in Y, as long as I'm breathing, no matter what she does or doesn't do. And even if I could manipulate or control her into keeping her marriage vow, I wouldn't recommend it because of two things. Number one, I would never know if she did that because I made her or because she wanted to. Hmm. And so number two, that would actually create more insecurity for me, not, not, um, not less. It, it, it's like drinking salt water when thirsty, and that's what the culture kind of you know, emphasizes for us to do, is to try to control our maid into doing what we want them to do, to well. love us and respect us. And that's not what a marriage covenant is about. It is a unilateral, unconditional commitment to dedicating myself to serve my spouse in the best ways I know how with God's help. And let's face it, if we were to analyze a, a failed relationship at any level, whether we're talking about uh, you know between two friends or two spouses, uh, oftentimes it's this issue of the expectations we place on another. And then yeah. they don't meet those expectations. Sometimes they don't even know that we have those expectations. And That's then right. we feel disappointed. And then our dis- disappointment turns into bitterness. And the bitterness then gets a deep root in our heart. And before you know it, we've decided, ah, you're, you're worthless. This marriage is never going to work out. And it's very easy to give up on it simply right. because we went into it with, with an inappropriate expectation of the other person to begin with. That's right. Let's talk a bit about... ...to love us and make us happy. Exactly. Let's talk, uh, Dr. Pingleton, a bit about uh, providing hope for couples that are right where we've been discussing. Now, we've all heard the stories about the couple that uh, calls the pastor and goes in for counseling, maybe even goes in to uh, meet with a professional counselor. And uh, for the hour that they're together, there's detente, and they're able to talk civilly because there's kind of a referee in the room. And and then the minute they get back in the car and walk out the door, they're back to arguing. What is different in your experience about the approach that the National Institute of Marriage has taken? And again, I want to mention for listeners that have joined us late, there's a wonderful partnership now, a marriage really, between the Ministry of Focus on the Family and the National Institute of Marriage that has had an incredible success rate at bringing together marriages that are in really, really bad shape and putting them through an intensive session uh, that lasts more than just an hour. And at the end of the day, I understand that research Search has demonstrated that couples that are willing to take part in in this approach, two years after they've gone through it, are still together, still married, and in fact, back on the road toward healing. What's different about the approach taken by the National Institute of Marriage? Great question, Craig. And this is what we're so excited about in at Focus on the Family is that this approach that the National Institute of Marriage does, they're located in two locations in Branson, Missouri, and Rome, Georgia. They offer an, a very creative and unique way to help couples heal that in a, less than a week, four or five days, they can get as much progress and health and healing uh, that it, than you would take on an average of one year of outpatient psychotherapy going once a week. 
what they do is a very concentrated and intensive version of helping people get to the root issues of what's going on in their marriage or what's not going on in their marriage that they want to. And they help each individual change, whether their spouse does or not. And the the exciting thing about it is many of those couples are hanging by a thread. They've already filed the divorce papers, you know, if, if it doesn't work to, to be activated on Monday when they get home. And this is a last resort, desperation kind of thing. But, but what they do um, and have for about 10 years at the National Institute of Marriage, and, and we're so excited that now Focus on the Family is, has joined with them and they with us, is this. They ask each individual, if God were to give you a miracle in your marriage, would you be willing to accept it? Hmm. And it's so awesome to see how God shows up every single week at, at those intensives where couples deal with issues that they feel absolutely hopeless and helpless about, and yet they, they see the change that takes place in themselves and in their spouse. And the miracle stories that happen there are just awesome. They are just amazing to see how God has restored and redeemed and reconciled hurting couples. And and this intensive time, it takes them away from the normal day-to-day environment because let's face it, it's, it's hard to be at the office all day long or be a stay-at-home parent all day long and then go to a counseling session and then come back and you're you're right back in the same environment. And sometimes just getting away in a, in a change of pace and a change of environment can help to clarify your thinking, deepen your understanding, and, and give yes. you kind of the space that you need. Isn't it true? Give, give them kind of Absolutely. the space that they need to be able to work through these issues. Yes, and, and this intensive therapeutic format enables the couple to go deep because when you're starting to get into some deep pain and, you know, 45 minutes or 50 minutes is up, you have to sort of research the wound that you've surgically incised in, and opened up that, that uh, pain and, and put duct tape and bailing wire on it basically till next week. And what this opportunity affords is, yes, to get away in a beautiful resort-like setting that's free from distraction and very relaxing and peaceful, but yet that opportunity to work concentratedly, intensively, without distraction, without other responsibilities or obligations. They do about eight hours of therapy every day, and then in the evenings there are directed um, learning exercises and interaction kinds of opportunities that each couple can participate in as well so that they can really, really focus exclusively and intensively on their marriage. And that investment works. Well, and you know, to put this in perspective, we bring oftentimes a whole childhood, a young adult life of pain and disappointment and the lack of of appropriate uh, healthy marriage modeling if we're coming from an abusive home or a broken home. And then we go into a marriage relationship and, and we've got two broken people together now that are all of a sudden helping to break each other even more so, sometimes wouldn't right. sometimes not so. And so there's a lifetime of this hurt and disappointment and failed expectations that have accumulated. And so to say, get away for two or three days. And let's try to put a Band-Aid on that. And I like your analogy. It, it, it's a lot like having heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. Yes. If the doctor said, gee, I've got a golf game in 45 minutes, so we'll start today, then we'll search you up, then we'll come back tomorrow and we'll we'll continue. And it might take me a week or so, but we'll finally get through it all. Well, you, you know what kind of pain and, and condition that patient would be in. So here's an intensive opportunity to work, start 
to finish through the issues, through the pain, through the bitterness, through the disappointment. And at the end of this experience, I understand, uh, Dr. Pinkerton, that, that better than 85% of people walk away with a pretty significant breakthrough, don't they? Well, they do. And, and what the research shows that uh, they have done over the years is that after therapy, two years later, that 85% of those couples are still together that came to their anticipating divorce. So they have the best results in terms of success rates clinically of any program or any counseling kind of uh, intervention or model or modality in the country. All right. With that sense of perspective and hope, I I trust you've heard something in our conversation today with Dr. Jared Pingleton that has said to you, okay, we still have another option here. And I want to urge you, hop on the Internet and go to nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com. And just get some more information. There are these intense retreats and conferences taking place all over the country. And you can go to the website to get more information. And uh, taking that first step, Dr. Pingleton, is oftentimes the, the, the step in the right direction that can ultimately lead to hope and restoration of a marriage. Absolutely. So again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. That's nationalmarriage.com. And we're so delighted to see this marriage, really this partnership between Focus on the Family and the Ministry of National Marriage. And here now is an opportunity for you to find hope and healing and restoration of your own marriage. Again, on the web at nationalmarriage.com. And our thanks to Dr. Jared Pingleton, Director of Counseling with Focus on the Family. And Dr. Pingleton, thanks again for the time and the insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me as a guest, Craig. God bless you all. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating to go into a Hindu temple for the very first time. And there's much pomp and circumstance, and you're required to take your shoes off and so on and so forth. And if you've never been in one, it's fascinating because a Hindu temple, at least the ones that we visited, was not a single altar to one god. But in fact, it is a, an almost large courtyard-like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods. Within the, the deist system of Hinduism, there's 33 million different gods. And it's amazing as you watch the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God or a God to try to get that God's attention, to try to get that God's appeasement. And it really is heartbreaking from a Christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this. And you can, you can sense about you uh, the demonic presence all around and the depravity of man. And it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to God and somehow connect with him and appease him. And yet we know from the story of the Bible that in reality God came down in fact God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty we're joined now by Johnny Moore 
who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion, and vice president of prestigious Liberty University, and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me. And then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. And uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you. Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture. People sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth. It, it, It paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God God came down, and as he did so, he, he he rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, and in so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as I, as I called him, in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made. He got dirty and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again. So that's why I called the book Dirty God. I wanted to reflect on the on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of Jesus Christ. In our fallen nature, all of this is counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, it is. It, it's, you know, not natural that that uh, you know, we we aren't to other people the way God is to us in Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, we we hold people accountable and we hold grudges. And in, in the face of justice, God is just. But what He is is He's also a God a God of grace. And so He wrote a story that has been the plot of every novel of any success and every movie that we watch. You know, everything through all of history is the same plot, this plot of redemption over and over. It's grace, and grace is gotten, and grace is given, and Jesus is the picture of that. And I think it's time we resurrect the image of this of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty so the world could get clean. You know, we oftentimes will hear the picture of of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't Ten Commandments. There was just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the ten that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, okay... I'm going to come up with yet another plan, and it, it ultimately kind of in the perspective of some, suggesting that, that it made God seem weak, but yet in your new book, Dirty God, you, you wonderfully paint the picture that, in fact, uh, the notion, as we said before, of God getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness. Yeah, you know, the, the, the easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve. I mean, we were the ones that turned our, our back on God. But what did he do? I mean, this is this is the God who made everything. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough, the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called called Nazareth. And eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? 
They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off of a cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it took God's strength. Not, it's not a, a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve in order to give us a second chance. And that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my, my book, Dirty God, is really a book about the kindness of God, the kindness of God given to, the, uh, to us as recipients of grace, and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And it's it is, a story. It, it is at so many levels, so uncomprehensible because I, I think we all have an idea about things that uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator, uh, refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do, and yet all of a sudden we find this image of... The King of Kings coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do. Yeah, and the people he hung out with. I mean, mm. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories about, about Jesus is that he chose these disciples. I mean, he he chose these people, and you look at their stories. You know, you, you, Peter is is you know, who speaks before he thinks, and he's rough around the edges. You got doubting Thomas, who's who's. You know, clearly like a pessimist. You've got James and John and, and you know, the Sons of Thunder, they called them. You've got all of these different personality types. These people always making mistakes. Jesus gets tired of them eventually and says, why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me? And, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came, and he could have come as, as a king. I mean, he could have, he could have done it that way. He, he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome. But instead, he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum, and he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us. Mm. And, and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection in their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect. And Jesus arrives as a god that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that everyday people, like the people listening right now, will feel that God cares about them, and he does. That's the image of Jesus, the dirty God. And what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across. I mean, you, you, as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this 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 ragtag group, most of whom most most decent fathers. Uh, that care about their daughters would 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 hardly allow your daughter to date any of these guys, let alone look at this group and say, as very God himself, I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end, it it it, it most necess- necessarily takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this: the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us, that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really, I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it? It, it, it sure does, and what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples, you know, Jesus saw in, in these followers of his, 
what they didn't see in themselves. He didn't see them where they were. He saw where they could be. And he, he both preserved their personalities, but he also redeemed their personalities. And you see how he used the characteristics of these, these people in the, in the story of Christianity, you know, when you read it through the Bible. And one of the things I really believe the church needs to do is resurrect the, the human side of Jesus. You know, we, the, the church believes and has believed for, for centuries that Jesus was fully God, he was fully divine, and he was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way in his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening even to our conversation now, it feels like they're the person least likely to be used by God to do something is maybe the most likely person. Because, because our God is a God who takes joy giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle that Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when thousands of people put their faith in him. So not, not only using not, where we are. not not only using the the least likely individuals, but but just as importantly and and I'll have you go into detail on this Johnny after the break to to help illustrate God's willingness to to literally come down and get his hands dirty and that is to reach out and touch into the lives of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the, the start of the book Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches out of India which parallels the story we see in Mark chapter 1, and we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, Pastor, Advisor, Professor of Religion, Vice President of Liberty University, he is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through, of course, uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at Johnny, J-O-N-N-I-E, Johnny Moore, with an E at the end there as well, dot O-R-G. Back to more of our conversation in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, also serves as Vice President of Liberty University. You start the book out, and I, and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark 1 and 41. And, and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand, and, and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day, if you would, Johnny, just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper. You know, we, we don't really understand this in our, our modern time because we, and particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing uh, diseases and to the degree that it was in the, in the first century. But um, in the first century, I mean, when, when someone had leprosy, when they arrived inside of a town, if they even came into a town, they had to carry a bell with them, and they had to ring the bell. They had to announce themselves as a leper. I mean, if you saw a leper at the end of the road, you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction. And so can you imagine when Jesus, in this like show-stopping moment, 
decides that the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy to. I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all, all heard about where, where, the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus' feet with her hair. But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the on the fringes of society. And it wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show-stopping moments in the gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of this message, but he reached to the rejected ones with grace and mercy and the gospel. And can you imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of God? I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's no wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time with. You know, it's interesting. We we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods. I don't know what that this is the singular case of a god that would be as a man. I guess it is. I mean, this this, this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my my work around the world. I, I, I've degreed in religion. I teach religion. I, I travel quite a bit. And I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in northwest India. I've, I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places in, in, in South Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions, and the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples. The Sikhs have their five caves, and the Muslims have their five pillars, and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down the planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us. And where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them, the story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the ladder ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for him to climb down to grab us and take us back with them. And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly uh, big within Hinduism, I mean, uh, in, in some cases, in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment um, how beautiful the child might be. It is looked on with, with, with great fear and embarrassment, at least that you draw the ire of a jealous God. And so the notion of trying to appease or avoid God uh, and his wrath in so many ways is, is in Inherent to all, virtually every major world religion, and yet here is one where it's not a matter of what we need to do for God, but rather what God has done for us. That, as Scripture reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. That through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation, and then 
restoration of a relationship with the very creator of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic. Even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute, uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, it's amazing to see that God came down to get his hands dirty. The book called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, again, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through Amazon.com, bookstores around the Bay Area, and of course through Johnny's website at johnnymore.org. That's J O N N I E. M-O-O-R-E dot O-R-G. Johnny, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today. We'll hope to visit with you again soon. Thanks. My, my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, brother. There's Johnny Moore again, Vice President of Liberty University, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.